Big single six. your name with all, Lord, as we sing this evening, your wondrous works among your people, and watching and guiding us, God, in our lives, and through our difficulties, and through, Lord, the many blessings you've bestowed upon us through your providence. This evening, God, be with us in special measure, we pray, for your glorious namesake. Amen. You may be seated. We have hymn 422, 422.
indeed rejoice with the psalmist God and how you do deliver and will ultimately deliver your people in the second coming of Christ, in which those who have maliciously, Lord, gone after us and are unrepentant God and will not submit, uh, will be finally judged in the people of God. Even the poor among us, as we read in the psalm, will be vindicated. Our Lord and Savior God Almighty, this evening as we come before you, as we rejoice in your goodness and your justice, we rejoice, Lord, in your blessings upon us, God, and through our work, as you've given us employment, Lord, for those of us who need it, and the monies that we have, God, come from you, we're thankful for that, God, and we ask, Lord, for good hours and good pay from our company, and good working conditions, Lord, and good support that we need to get the job done. And we ask that in, Lord, that we would have wisdom in that regard with our company and our job situation, our prospects, Lord, uh, to use our choices aright, God, uh, to gain the help and ask as we are accorded and able to do, Lord, and certainly for ourselves, God, to work as unto you, to learn to do better if need be, God. And we ask, Lord, in these difficult situations, perhaps we find ourselves in with our work situation, uh, that we would persevere therein, Lord, and trust in you and your providence. We pray for those who are underemployed for better employment and better money, for those who are overemployed with respect to the hours and uh, unnecessary work, as it seems, Lord, to us, that we would persevere in, Lord, and that would be a better situation for us. We're thankful, God, that you've blessed us financially in many ways as a church and as individuals and families, God, and that these things will continue, Lord, and we would be wise with the funds that we have. Lord God, and we pray, Lord, not only for ourselves, but for those from other churches and fellow Christians, God, and family members who need better work, that they would get a living wage, God, and that you would be with them and help them with what they need for their work situation as well. We lift up, God, our friends and family who are erring, who, Lord, are fleeing and leaving, and have left your church and your gospel and your truth, Lord, partly perhaps it could be because of ignorance, it could be because of deception from the devil, Lord, and uh, other problems around us, God. And so we pray for them that you would soften their hearts and help guide them to the truth. And certainly, Lord, whatever the situation is, uh, God and Savior, we ask that we would be wise and help us, Lord, in talking with them, being patient with them and praying for them, God, and showing them love and patience, Lord, and at the end of the day, always trusting and relying upon you. And so we pray, God, in particular, Lord, for the churches, for our church, for our presbytery, for our denomination, and the churches involved, with those who have erred and have been formally disciplined by the church, that you would help them uh, instruct and to appeal to those members, former members, Lord, who have been punished by the church, properly, Lord, disciplined, aright, so that they could, uh, Lord, learn and your providence, the importance of you and your word, that they would indeed learn such a lesson, God, and would be, would be taught to them quickly. Sometimes it takes a long time, Lord. We know what happened in our church, God, and uh, he came back. We're grateful for that, Lord, and you have been with him. We pray, Lord, for the same for others that are near to us and part of our family. We lift up our sister churches and denominations, Lord, who are like unto us, the Presbyterian Church of America, that you would be with her and purify her and strengthen her in her hour of need. We pray for other such churches, such as the URC and others, Lord, and the Covenanters, God, that you would also be with them and strengthen them. Be with their churches, be with their denominations, God, that they would resist the temptation and pressures of society around us, for they are men of flesh like us. And uh, God, our Savior, we be with the churches, we be with the members and the families, Lord, that they would be encouraged to follow you and to support their pastor, God, and encourage him and the ministers and the uh, officers of the church, Lord, over them to do the right thing, to be shepherds of the sheep, as we will see this evening, God, and to do these things regardless of what sometimes the sheep say or do not say, uh, certainly, Lord, what the world and the wolves will say against them. We pray, Lord, that you strengthen those churches Grow them, Lord, we pray, spiritually, in obedience to you, and numerically. And not only for them, Lord, but other churches of like faith and practice, other churches, Lord, who are Christians and may not be Presbyterian or other like differences that we have, God, and we have good hopes for them. We ask that you would be with them here in our, in our city, Lord, and in our state, that they would also be strengthened, that they would also follow your word and submit to the gospel and the law of Jesus Christ found in the Bible, and they would grow as well and be blessed by your spirit unto more obedience and holiness, God, and be with those pastors that they would also have shepherds after your own heart, Lord, to feed the flock of Jesus Christ. Be with us, be with your church, watch over us, God, and help us to grow this week and to take things day by day. By your spirit alone we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings.
Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. magnify your name and indeed praise you God Almighty for this beautiful Lord's Day for a time of rest for our body and our soul Lord and an opportunity this evening to give these tithes and offerings for the work of the kingdom bless them we pray and bless those who have given them amen you may be seated we are in first Peter chapter 5 verse 2 Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. 1 Peter 5, 2. I'm only reading part of it. Shepherd the flock of God. Let us pray. In these words, God Almighty, you have spoken through the Apostle Peter to the churches of the Mediterranean diaspora, and to us today, to the extent that it's applicable, and it certainly is, Lord, to the officers of the church who have this responsibility to shepherd or tend to the flock of God, to be with them, to, Lord, lead them, to teach them and feed them, and to defend them. Help us, we pray, Lord, to understand better what that may mean, and to stand firm upon the truth therein, and to uh, desire that and pray to that end for our church and for our denomination, for all Christian churches. In your name alone we pray. Amen. In a day and age where pastors and church officers multiply as quickly as someone can get an audience to start a church, especially when the number of scandals have occurred over the years, it's important for the flock of God to know what church leadership to look for and what church leadership to submit to. This text provides an opportunity to cover over that subject, as I've gone over to some extent, for the encouragement of the saints to better guide and encourage us to keep doing the right thing, that you are not wrong in seeking out such churches and leadership, and to guide, obviously, the church officers. This is what you should look for in church officers. I won't be here forever. Tripp and Bob won't be here forever. Things may happen in the future, and we have to know and instruct our children and our friends Right. Well, it's three points that are not all the requirements. It's just a template to help you better digest the truth of what is needed for pastors. A simplified way of handling many characteristics for church leadership. Also, the list, of course, covers both the teaching and elder responsibilities to the extent they overlap, which is to a great part, of course, recognizing the difference, especially with respect to proper formal preaching and teaching. So let us look with those proper understandings and caveats carefully at God's requirements here. First of all, to shepherd the flock means to lead the flock. That word there, to shepherd or tend, is very broad in its usage, of course, because it's a metaphor covering what shepherds do with sheep. It is, first of all, under this point, a public holy calling. A public holy calling, and therefore it has requirements for it. 1 Timothy 3.1, we read part of that list of requirements. It's not an exhaustive list. You can think of things in there that are not on the list, sins that pastors shouldn't have that are not on the list, because it's not supposed to be an exhaustive list. A bishop then must be blameless, a husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. Now, that list, I didn't read everything, of course, is a good list for all Christians. (laughs) This is not like, well, we only expect the pastors to have this. The rest of you all can do whatever you want. No, but rather, all Christians are called to this, but the pastors must especially have the, the grace of God bestowed upon him, the shepherds of the church, such that they see this in greater measure, relatively greater measure. An obvious measure. Hence the language, for example, he must be, uh, the bishop must be blameless. Obviously not absolutely blameless, it would only be Christ, but relatively blameless compared to the other Christians around them. And of course, as we read uh, later on here in verse 7, a testimony to the world. 
And that's what we have here, without scandal. Moreover, he must have a good testimony, verse 7, among those who are outside. That is, outside the flock, outside the church of God Almighty, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. That his name be dragged through the mud and the church of God be dragged through the mud. And of course, that description here, he is, has a good testimony among those who are outside, obviously doesn't mean a testimony as defined by unbelievers which is the temptation we have in conservative circles. We see that in politics, where politicians change their mind because the opinions of those around them change, and they look bad in the eyes of those around them, so they change their actions and opinions. Churches do that. Pastors do that. The temptation is strong to mold ourselves to the opinion. That's not what it's saying here. It's saying that their uprightness, as defined by God's law, is such that even the world sees it and understands it. That man's upright. I don't like the uprightness. I think he's a goody two-shoe. Whatever. But they see it. That's what it's talking about. Above reproach in that definition that is by God's definition, not how the world defines reproach at their worst, but at their best, as we shall say. Because, of course, they also know good things when they see it. They just don't like it. And this is important because people will use that as an excuse uh, to undermine the ministry and to make uh, excuses for bringing in uh, wickedness and uh, shutting down the mouth of a preacher because he says something bad and it hurt the feelings of the unbeliever. Yeah, because that never happened with Christ and Paul, right? <laughs> See how they, they turn the text on its head? That's a danger, and I'm warning us of that danger. That's not what it's talking about. In other words, no self-induced scandals. The world will see it. They know a scandal when they see it. Even if they kind of like it. Ah, see, they're just like us. Right? They have these, they break up their marriages and everything else. Just like us, they kind of laugh and are gleeful at it. I've seen it. <clears throat> no, no self-induced scandals that the world will see that we are, that is, the leaders of the church are chosen by God. They are to lead by example in particular, right? So they are to lead the flock. That's the first major point I'm on. And I explained that's part of the idea of a formal official office that has formal qualifications, as we read here in 1 Timothy, and I'm going to focus on leading. A shepherd must lead. Lead by example. A negative example is the way I describe it here. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to blame, Galatians 2.11. And the negative example in that case is, how does Peter take the rebuke? Does he listen to Paul? Does the pastor who is caught in an error, perhaps a too, too quick with his mouth or something like that, because we don't expect perfection, obviously, how will he respond to correction? The, usually it's the session that will see that, or the presbytery, although you may see it sometimes if you uh, catch him in an error. Uh, you misquoted that passage, for, perhaps, or you, I think you misspoke in the sermon. Is he going to say, okay, well, sure, I probably did. I don't remember, but... I can see that happening, or something like that. And that's leading by the negative example of, does he take correction? Will he acknowledge sin? Positively, maybe those aren't the best ways of describing it, is what we typically think of example, is he upright? Does he do the right thing? Does he pursue the right goals with respect to his office and feeding the sheep and leading the sheep and leading his household? Is his household under control? That's clearly there in First Timothy. Is he a faithful preacher? Or is he afraid to talk about issues and always dodging them? There's a time to be wise, of course, and not uh, turn the pulpit into always bashing bad issues of the day. I understand that. And it can be very hard, uh, especially when the pastor uh, sees a lot of this stuff and he needs some feedback and he gets it often, I think, in churches. But we know what a positive example is. What we want out of a pastor, not perfection, but at least a man who has a relatively a relative blamelessness in his uh, composure, and that is, in his moral uprightness, in his preaching, in his teaching, in his actions, publicly before the world, so that there is no scandal. You think that was obvious, but again, there are mega churches, and they've imploded. Because people love the pastor, he's exciting, he says amazing things, they've got a great ministry, they have all these things for the kids, and the pastor is just an overlord, apparently that happened out there on the west coast, northwest coast, and uh, the church just fell apart. He was just a, he pushed people around and everything. I haven't watched the video, it had a whole expose on it. He was one of the rising stars of the New Calvinist, if you remember that from 2009 onwards. And it turned out he was an overlorder. That text right here, a taskmaster, not being lords over those entrusted to you, verse 3. That's a negative example, and that's a reminder that people should lead by example. When they saw that, when the leadership saw that, they should have said there's a problem here, but they didn't. 
because they got a big church. Temptation is strong. I'm not saying we're above that, uh, but I'm reminding us as a a livid example. vivid example of what goes on. Not only leading by example, both negatively they acknowledge sin, positively they lead by godly example, but they also lead with wisdom, applying the best solutions, at least under the conditions, for the situation, for a difficult situation before them. Because wisdom, used in that sense, is using God's law and applying it to the best of your ability to your situation. It's not always clear. There's not always a a text that says explicitly what you should do, you know, with the money, with the funds is always a good example. Where does the God say the funds should, how much percentage of the funds should go to foreign missions? How much to home missions? How much to education? How much to diaconate? The Bible doesn't give it that explicit. And so we pray for wisdom from God so that we can figure out the best application of the principle of using the money rightly for good, per- good causes and purposes. And the same thing with the pastor. Does he, have, does he lead with wisdom and instruction for the flock and in making decisions, hard decisions? Of course, he doesn't make them himself. He makes them with the session, although he makes some decisions in preaching, obviously, with the implicit or tacit approval of the session who has any time to correct him. Uh, knowledge of the flock is involved in leading with wisdom. So not just does he apply God's law relatively consistently and faithfully, and it makes sense. Sure, I can see why he does that and why he would encourage or instruct his family or instruct you. But also, with respect to leading the flock, the shepherds of the church, not just the pastor, but the ruling elders, must know the flock. They must be aware of the flock. To lead, you have to know how to lead in the sense of what the people are like, to what extent are they obedient? To what extent are they mature? To what extent do they have other um, problems or strengths or weaknesses? The shepherd knows the sheep. He knows this one has a wounded leg, so we'll go a little slower. This one gets hungry very often. I've got to feed him more often. <laughs> so we have, we have midweek Bible studies or something, right? As opposed to just Sunday. And these opportunities are, are given to the church that you may grow uh, thereby. And that's because the shepherds of the church should know the people of the church, not in the sense of being your best friend, but in the sense at least enough to know uh, what needs to be instructed because different churches need different instructions to, to varying degrees. There's different weaknesses in different churches to varying degrees, like in families and like in individuals. Because we're dealing with groups of people, of course, when it comes to instructing and leading the flock you have to make a decision that affects the most people the best. You can't cover every person. It's easier in a small church, but you can't cover every person's need per se all the time. You know that. It's like in a family. You have to make a decision for the most members of the family. And so that's part of the wisdom that shepherds must have in knowing the flock and in leading the flock, knowing the state of their flock we've been talking about. So that's the first point, leading. The shepherd must lead by example, lead with wisdom, lead by knowledge of uh, the sheep and what they need in terms of instruction. So the second point, shepherding by feeding the flock. Shepherds feed the flock. They've got to know the flock to know what kind of food they need. Deeper sermons are for congregants and congregations that have much instruction. It doesn't make sense to go into the deeper matters of the Word of God, the harder matters, the weightier matters, the congregation is still learning the basics of the gospel. They're still learning the ABCs of Jesus Christ and salvation. The word justification is a, is, a, is a big idea for them still, or sanctification or something like that. And so churches must have, that is shepherds, when I say churches, I mean the leadership, obviously, has that wisdom in terms of feeding the flock. Now, of course, here, preaching and teaching is what we have in mind, more particularly the oracles of God, that old uh, KJV language, that is, the uh, mysteries and the truths of God and his ordinances. 1 Corinthians 4.1, we're reminded, let a man so consider us, speaking of the apostles, but more than the apostles, the teachers as well, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. God has given to the church, and not just the church in general, but to the officers of the church, not just all the officers, but to the session and the pastor in particular, the preaching of the Word of God, the mysteries of the truth of the gospel, of the Word, of the Bible, to feed the flock, to instruct them and to warn them and to guide them. And it's a serious and high calling is what I'm highlighting here. And it's the word of God and not the shepherd's own word, but we are stewards. We are uh, servants in the house of God. 
given a precious treasure, the Word of God, and we are not to use it like it's something from man, but it's God's. And we are stewards or servants, and therefore, all the more it must be that we preach and only preach the Word of God. We should not put up in churches with pastors who bring up their own pet theologies that are added to the Word of God and other things like that, but rather only what God has given us. The foolishness of preaching of the Bible, of the Word of God, is highlighted in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I've read that a number of times and alluded to it. We don't have to go there, but it's a reminder that's the language used. The foolishness of preaching is what is highlighted in that text where Paul says even baptism plays a second place to that preaching. I baptize no one, he says. He says he doesn't want that to be an issue for the church of Corinth. Oh, I got baptized by Peter. Oh, I got baptized by Paul. He's like, forget all that. What's important is the preaching. He's not saying you should be baptized. Obviously, Christ commanded it. But there's a priority, a, a seriousness, a, a weightiness to preaching that's there. That question in Sunday school class about, well, you know, what's the primary doctrine, what's the secondary doctrine, that's part of the answer right there. If you had the two pressing against each other, and people fighting and arguing over baptism, Paul cut it down the middle, like Solomon, who cut the baby, <laughs> threatened to cut the baby, as it were, and said, no, no, look, it's preaching. He got the wrong, wrong issue here. It's preaching. And so that highlights, and the Reformers have always gone to that text, that highlights the importance of feeding the flock, of preaching and teaching of the Word of God and only the Word of God, and applying it to the people. And it's a twofold application, of course, of that quote-unquote foolish preaching. It's not foolish, of course, before God, but foolish before men. The law and the gospel. The sheep need the law, and the sheep need the gospel. The law for repentance, and the gospel for faith, or the object of our trust, which is Jesus Christ, our Savior. The law for repentance, of course, is highlighted in the great ministry of John the Baptizer as also someone who specializes in Preaching repentance. I mean, that was, that was his motif. That's his job. He was a one-note Johnny. And there's a time for that. And there was a time, the time of Christ before his coming, because he made straight the crooked ways and leveled the field so that even the kings had to be brought low before God. They had to repent. And he told that to Herod <laughs> and lost his head for it. Because he was faithful to God. He was a faithful minister. Matthew 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when you have, unfortunately, a strong press against our churches, stop that. That's so mean. Like I said, I read that book, and he doesn't want to use that language for that niche market he wants to bring into the church. you got to love him to heaven. What? What? If the people of God whom Christ Jesus came to, the Jews, were told to repent, how much more should those outside the church repent who refuse to even come to the church and be in the church? It's just, just, it's just amazing. So the call of the law and repentance is there in Christ's ministry from day one. The good news, yes, and also the bad news. You're a sinner and you need to repent. And, of course, Peter called out the Jews uh, when I preached to that, it was just amazing. When you read that, you just look, stare at it, and you, your jaw drops. He says, you guys crucified, you're a bunch of murderers, is what he said. To his audience. <clears throat> and, of course, the gospel. Repentance must always be tied to faith and the preaching therein. Second Timothy 2.24. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to preach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Granting of repentance, repentance is the softening of the heart so that it could receive and submit to the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel, to receive Christ Jesus, to depend and rest upon him, to save them, to cry out for him, that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So we have a description again of what those outside the church are like, as much as we may mourn for them, especially if they're close to us. We pray, we ask, but we also preach and speak that they may repent and also believe. Jesus didn't preach only repentance. Obviously, he called them out to believe and trust in him. He is 
the fount of life, he cried out in the day of festivals. Come to me that you may have eternal life. The law and the gospel is a traditional way of describing and distinguishing proper preaching in the Reformed tradition and in the Bible, I would argue. And another way of describing uh, part of a proper preaching and shepherding of the sheep, of feeding the flock, and drilling into the idea of the law is moral instruction. And the gospel, of course, doesn't exclude the law in the sense of, narrowly speaking, the gospel is the good news. Broadly, the gospel is the good news that you are saved unto holiness. And holiness means you've got to have instruction what it means to be holy. That's the law of God. So that's the positive use of the law of God, not just repentance, but also showing us and guiding us down the path of what it means to be holy in our sanctification. And so we have... Uh, then a simple description of what a pastor should do in Acts 20. In Acts 20, Paul calls the elders of Ephesus together and gives them instruction. And he says in verse 20 of chapter 20, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you. In other words, he held back nothing. He wasn't just giving them a little bit here and a little bit there, but everything that was needful from the Word of God, needful for their situation, needful for their growth and righteousness and holiness. There are many helpful things in the Bible, as we know, um, that we need to hear, that pastors need to preach. They shouldn't hold back parts of the Word of God that the people need to hear. And, of course, he says that in the famous passage in verse 27, near the end of his exhortation to the shepherds, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. We shouldn't have just only preaching of the gospel and of Christ. We shouldn't have only just preaching of the law and nothing of Christ, but a proper mixture of old and new wine, to use another metaphor, to bring them out of the cellar and give them to the people of God as they need it in their situation. And I believe that's what you see with Paul in his ministry. You see that with Christ in his ministry as well. Hold there, I've not held back or shunned back the whole counsel of God, instruction, examples, encouragement, warnings, history, poetry, epistles, everything in the Bible, and all the different genres and exhortations and uh, other purposes and usefulnesses of the Word of God. He didn't hold it back. Everything that was needful, even officers, I mean, he has in 1 Timothy, right, we read that in chapter 4, that I wrote this to teach you how to live and, and to move and to be a Christian in the household of God. I'm teaching you've got to have officers in the church. Sure, it's not a primary doctrine in the one sense. You can still be a Christian and not have a church, as it were, because, you know, you can't find a church. It's a desert. It, you got nuked. Whatever the case, you're starving, of course. You want all of the counsel of God. You want the fullness therein if you can get a hold of it. And that includes simple things like Presbyterian church government. And so we must teach as pastors and uh, shepherds and the ruling elders want this in their churches. They should want this and have only these kind of pastors that teach you everything that's there clearly in the Word of God. Counseling is typically thought of in terms of feeding the sheep, not just proper preaching and teaching and the like, uh, but counseling to give, I take that to mean giving practical advice. We are not professional counselors in the sense of having all the experience often, at least not in my experience, and not all pastors are equal to counseling abilities of others any more than all of them are equal uh, in preaching and expertise and different things of theology and the like. Some are better at theology, some are better at exegesis, some are better at history and things like that, depending on their training and experience, of course. There are difficult situations even beyond uh, the shepherds of the church, the ruling elders and all their experience, and sometimes we're just stuck with prayer. Or experts, someone else who knows more than we do. And so in terms of counseling and shepherding the sheep and the flock of God, we know no church is an island, and so we need one another. We recognize not all shepherds are equally competent when it comes to counseling, and so we have others who have a lot more experience, and we may uh, recommend them uh, for you. And, of course, again, knowledge of the flock in terms of teaching and preaching and what they need to hear uh, is required of the shepherds by good and necessary implication. You cannot feed the flock if you don't know what kind of food they need. Maybe you're low on fiber. <laughs> Maybe you're low on protein, you know, to, to, to use that metaphor. Maybe you need a little more law. Maybe you need a little more gospel. Maybe you need more practical encouragement. Maybe you need more admonition. Maybe you need more 
um, hopeful and hope and joy in the spirit. The third point, shepherds defend the flock. Shepherds lead, shepherds feed. Uh, Too bad I don't have something that rhymes with that. Lead and feed and defend the flock. Why defend? Of course, as you know, it's an uncomfortable topic. We have enough things to deal with in church and family as churches, uh, families in the churches, of course, and our own difficulties in life. Uh, but since, of course, sin is a default condition like gravity, always pulling us down and pulling the churches down, the church feels the pull. And so Paul and exhorts, and therefore we are also exhorted, uh, to defend the sheep, as he does in Acts 2.28, that he warns them that wolves will come in to devour the sheep. That's his exhortation to the elders. He says a number of other things. I've preached everything. I've not held anything back, but I'm warning you. I'm warning you. It's coming. And this is the great age of the book of Acts. We're like, I wish I lived in Paul's church. But he's sitting there telling you, you know, it's still a church that's struggling with sin. It's still a church that has deceitful wolves and liars in her midst, and the leadership in particular. I don't think we are beyond that today. And so that, in that somber speech by Paul, we get a peek into the reality of the New Testament church. They were under attack. They were in danger. They were open to harmful lies of the wolves devouring the sheep. Life was not a bed of roses. Paul is evidence of that. And this speech by Paul shows that the enemies of the church are ruthless. They come from without and from within the body of Christ. And what should the church do? If some had their way today, the church would welcome them with open arms, arguing that we can love them to heaven. Of course, certainly not that at all. I just watched the megachurch. It wasn't just a book of megachurch down in Florida where the pastor basically said that. We just got to bring them in. And he bragged about all the different kinds of sinners they had. Not repentant sinners. Christ came to sinners. He means I came to repentant sinners. Right? We all, we all recognize that. And I'm bringing them into the church, and we're going to let them do things in the church and, and help in these classes and help with handicapped people. And help. Like you're bringing in strangers who are unbelievers, who aren't Christians at all, and they're going to help the handicapped kids? What? Oh, they're not going to be in leadership positions. Whatever. They're default, Christian, they're default members of the church, basically. De facto members of the church with that kind of activity. It was bizarre, bizarre world. I'm listening to this. What am I listening to? What is this? What a, what a dangerous place to be in. That's not Paul's attitude at all. He takes a different tact. His first thought is not, how can I protect, uh, his first thought is, how can I protect the church? Not, how can I protect the church and be winsome at the same time? He tells them one strategy they must be using at all times. They should take heed. He says, take heed. The wolves are coming in Acts 20, 28. And we should take that warning seriously today. Enemies are without. Enemies within. Enemies without are obvious. Those outside the church and the, those inside the church, the leadership, at least some of them, again, some have uh, more insight than others, should be the sons of Issachar. The sons of Issachar in First Chronicles 12, 32, we read, who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Pray for the sons of Issachar is what we need in the church today to protect us from those without. And again, not all ministers are able to do that. We all, we all have different uh, churches and different issues we deal with. But some can. Society, universities, Hollywood, everything is stacking more and more against us. And of course, as you know, they call us women haters. They call us uh, bigots. They call us whatever they feel like calling us. And religious groups, of course, and the like, who pretend to be Christian and the like and are not. Those are enemies without the church. Cults and the like, they're more subtle, of course, in that regards. We must defend against them. And of course, enemies within in many ways, more dangerous and more subtle because they're here among us. They're people we thought were our brothers and sisters that end up being wolves and those who wish to devour us. I know this, that after my departure, he says, is verse 29, excuse me, savage wolves will come in among you. Not just wolves, but savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up. That warning is for us today. The early church had the problem. We have the problem. We should watch out for predators and pretenders, not just in the ministry, but even among the flock. Because, of course, today, unlike back then, you can start a parachurch ministry and never be a pastor and have lots of influence and more influence than a pastor. It's the strangest thing. 
There's a time and place for parachurches, but that's one of the abuses, unfortunately, of those things. And they rise up, and they want to destroy the sheep of God and preach lies and tear down and tear away from the church the members therein. We are called, therefore, to warn publicly and individually, privately, and in proportion to the problem when wolves are out there outside the church trying to come in, as well as inside the church trying to destroy us. Pastors must do that to the extent that they are aware of the issues, of course, and see them. Pray, brothers and sisters, the pastors to do their duties for the shepherds, ruling elders as well, to do their duties and for their support. And pray for the flock of God to be protected, to be fed, and to be led by Jesus Christ through his under-shepherds. Let us pray. We praise you, Almighty God above, for these words, as he gives us a simple metaphor that compacts many truths throughout the Bible, Lord, of what it means to be shepherds, to be leaders of the church of God, to protect the sheep and to feed them the word of God. Help us, Lord. Help us to love one another and to take seriously this admonition and to encourage the leadership as well as the sheep, the shepherds, and all of us, Lord, to follow your ways. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us sing Psalm 8080B. One through four. of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.